time, we will dismiss our children that have already signed in for Children's Church. That will be eight children that have signed in ages three years old through kindergarten. You can meet Pastor Nathan and Miss Amy over at the door. Parents, you can walk them there or send them in that direction. And you can pick them up following the service in the toddler nursery, which is on the downstairs level. Now, while they're making their way over there, the rest of us, if you will, please take your Bible and open it to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14 will be our text this morning. All right, John chapter 14. We'll be focusing on verses 1 through 14. Remind you that the words we are about to hear were spoken by Jesus to his disciples just hours before he was arrested. He has been preparing them for this moment. But the reality of what's about to take place hasn't sunk into their hearts yet. So let's hear as he begins teaching them and us about life post-resurrection. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, eternity is not enough to sing your praises. You are glorious and good beyond what we can fathom. And we thank you, Father, for pouring your mercy and your goodness upon us. Now, Father, we ask you to speak clearly to us this morning. Where we are in need of encouragement, please grant it. Where we are in need of comfort, please comfort us. Father, even where we are in need of conviction, please convict us. 
Do all of this with the glory of your name we pray. Amen. It's no secret that Jesus was a master storyteller. Now his stories always had a point. For example, in the Gospels it's recorded he told a, a parable about a man that went out sowing seed. Now he explained to the disciples and to us that the seed was the gospel. So this was a person that was going out preaching, sowing seed, preaching the word. And the word would fall on different types of soil. He said one part of the seed, one preaching of the word fell on this rocky soil and it didn't take much root. And the sun came out and the seed withered and died. He said this is like the person who hears the gospel. But when persecution and tribulation comes, it dies in their heart. He told about another seed, another preacher who preached, and the seed went out and it fell on this soil that was seemed to be fertile, but it was so fertile that thorns and weeds grew up around it and choked out the gospel seed. Jesus said this is what happens with the worries of the world. And the deceitfulness of riches come into our hearts. Those worries will choke out the gospel because they distract us from Jesus. Those worries and anxieties will cause us to doubt God's goodness and maybe even give up on the faith. The list of worries that could choke out our faith is long indeed. We could begin by listing the pandemic, which has led to many job losses, which has led to financial problems. And if those are not anxieties enough, they're the normal stresses of everyday living that begin to weigh our souls down. The passage we just read describes the disciples and their souls are feeling heavy. Think about everything they've just heard. Jesus has said, Peter, you will deny me. And they've got to be thinking, if Peter will deny Jesus, what will I do? And their hearts begin to get heavy. Jesus has said that someone will betray him. The anxiety in the disciples gets a little more weighty. And in all this, Jesus has been saying that he's going away to a place where they can't follow. And the weight on their hearts feels like lead. That's why the disciples needed to hear what Jesus said next. That's why we need to hear it. Because often when our souls are shaken and our faith is wavering, we need to hear Jesus say to you, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Keep believing. Believe in God. Believe in me. Keep the faith. In times of turmoil, keep the faith. In times of tribulation, keep the faith. In times of testing, keep the faith. Now, Jesus does not give just a generic, don't stop believing. He goes on to give three promises that will help fortify our faith so that when worries and anxieties rise and our hearts are agitated, we can cling to these promises and the gospel seed will continue to grow in our lives. The first promise is found in verses 2 through 6. Why should our hearts not be troubled? Why in my Father's house are many rooms? If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, when he says my Father's house, he's referring to God's dwelling place. Now, many may say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Isn't God omnipresent? He's everywhere. 
So if God is everywhere, how can we speak of God's dwelling place? Well, think of it in terms like this. This room is illuminated by light bulbs. Those bulbs cast light so that in many ways the light is omnipresent within this room. But that light flows from a locus point where that bulb is. The closer you are to the bulb, the more you'll feel the heat. The more intense the light will be. The dwelling place speaks of that locus point of God's being, where He is the brightest, where we can enjoy His presence. So He says that in my Father's house, where my Father is located, are many rooms. Now, this may throw some of us off. If you grew up reading the King James Version, memorize this in the King James Version, or maybe even are using the King James Version, you're used to hearing the word mansions. In my Father's house are many mansions. In fact, this has given rise to many gospel songs that carry on the idea of a heavenly built more that is waiting just for you. Songs like, mansion just over the hilltop. But I hate to be that preacher, but I'm going to. The King James Version in this instance used a transliteration of a Latin term, mansio. That Latin word mansio means dwelling place. So the point is not that when you get to glory, you'll have a 28-room mansion with a swimming pool right next to my 30-room mansion. That's not the point at all. The point is that there is space in God's presence just for you. He has prepared a place for you. There is room for you in God's presence. When my kids were younger and we would travel, we quickly found out that hotels do not focus on families that have three children. Families of five are troublesome at hotels. So this is what we did, and I confess this was not the best parenting. Okay, here it is. Our son Samuel was small at that point, so we would scoot two chairs together, and he would sleep in the two chairs. Now, before you cast stones at me, Samuel has said it worked to his benefit because now he is very flexible. And he feels like that was part of how that happened. So here's the good news. When you get to glory, God's not going to say, well, wait, wait a minute, let's get two chairs together for you. You're going to find a place, room prepared just for you with intent by God through Jesus Christ. Now, notice what Jesus said. I told you I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I have to confess that there are times that I have preached this passage incorrectly. There are many funerals that I've stood and I've preached that Jesus, who was a carpenter on earth, is now in heaven and he is building a house for you. Because that will preach, won't it? The carpenter's building a house. But I've since learned that's not what this is about. When Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you, he was talking about the cross. The whole section deals with Jesus' journey to the cross. And he is saying that in my death and my resurrection, I am preparing a place for you in the dwelling place of my Father. That as I die and I rise again, a place is prepared for you. That by his death, he has satisfied the wrath of God that we can be brought into a relationship with him. And because he has died and rose again and paid such a price for our salvation, for our promise of a place in God's presence, we have this promise. Verse 3, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He is saying that because I have paid such a price to secure your place in the heavenly dwelling of my Father, you can rest assured that I am going to come and get you here. He is referring to the second coming where we will be gathered to Him. Now, 
one of the, the things in this pandemic that my family's taken great advantage of and is probably quite cool and I hope they keep doing it is curbside pickup. We love curbside pickup. Now, there have been a few glitches, like the time I tried to order three six-ounce cans of corn and got three six-pound cans of corn. few glitches, but otherwise it's been great. We order online, we pay online, we pull up, they put the groceries in the car, the stuff from Target or Walmart, and we drive away. It's wonderful. But what would you think if I said, you know what, I've placed this order, I've paid for it, but I don't think I'm going to go get it. I mean, after all, it's just a hat. I'm not. You'd say, that's crazy. You've paid for it. All you got to do is drive over there. Now, if we on an earth level would say, I've paid for groceries, I'm going to go get them so I can have them, how much more will Jesus, who died, who shed his blood for our sins, rose from the dead, will he come back to get us one day to take us to be with him? And notice the promise. It's to be with him. That where I am, you may be also. You see, often when we think of the Father's house or heaven, we think of the Garden of Eden, and indeed it's described like that. Or we think of the city of God, and it's described like that. But hear me clearly. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. If you had all that other stuff, if you had the most beautiful, luscious garden you could imagine, if you had the most incredible city you could imagine, if God was not there, it would not be heaven. It is the presence of God. And Jesus has said, I'm going to take you so that you can be with me. And then he says in verse 4, you know the way to where I'm going. You know how to get there. Now this causes some consternation. This is an instance where the ignorance of the disciples serves to further our clarity. Because Thomas speaks up. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? The disciples don't understand. So Jesus makes a statement that has become a stumbling block to many. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a stumbling block because it's an exclusive statement. Jesus is the only way to be in God's presence after death. There is no other way. We can't overlook the definitive articles. I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth. I am the life, not a life. All of those speak to the exclusive nature of Christianity, that Jesus is the only mediator that brings us to God. Now, the way is the predominant idea in the passage. The truth and the life support the way. So Jesus is saying that he is the way because he is the truth about God. He is the supreme revelation of God. He is the way because he is the life, the life of God. He gives life. This passage speaks of Jesus' role as the only mediator between us and God. A mediator seeks to bring two parties that are at odds with one another together. As much as we don't like to admit it, the Bible says that from our very births we are at odds with God. We are by nature children of wrath. We rebel against Him. 
So Jesus has come to bring God the Father and us together as the mediator. He is the way between God and humanity. He is the bridge. Jesus is the truth of God because He reveals God to humanity. Jesus is the life of God because He brings salvation to humanity. There is no other way of salvation. Thomas Akempis, a voice from the past, wrote a devotional book called The Imitation of Christ that is highly worth reading. In it, in reflecting on this passage, Thomas Akempis rephrased it in these ways. As if Jesus is saying, follow thou me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way you must follow. I am the truth you must believe. I am the life that you must hope. We keep the faith because Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. And we do that because there is the promise that He has given us of a better place that awaits, prepared by His death. Now He moves on to another promise in verses 7 through 11. If the first promise is of a greater place that awaits, this is the promise that in Jesus we see a clear picture of God. Because verses 7 through 11 revolve around knowing God and the only way to know God is in Christ. Now this longing to know God is a basic longing of all humanity and it's the answer or the question that all religions seek to answer. What is God like? Every religion deals with that in some way. What is God like? Now we've already established that Jesus has spoken of the exclusive nature of who He is. He is the only way to know God. Jesus brings God into clear focus. Christianity is unique in that we believe God came to earth in the flesh, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. See, there's the old joke of the little boy in Sunday school that was feverishly drawing a picture. His teacher walked over to him and said, Jimmy, what are you doing? What are you drawing? And Jimmy said, ma'am, I'm drawing a picture of God. She said, well, Jimmy, no one knows what God looks like. And Jimmy answers by saying, they will when I'm done. Jesus gives us a clear picture of what God is like. The full, complete picture. Jesus says in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. But then he says, from now on, you do know him. And this is what's even more shocking. You have seen him. That as Jesus walked the earth, we saw what it's like for God the Father to walk the earth. As Jesus spoke, we have heard what it is when God the Father speaks. Now Philip still doesn't get it. And once again, his lack of understanding leads to our further clarity. Lord, show us the Father and that's enough. Just let us see God the Father. That's enough, Jesus. Now in my imagination, I think Jesus is a little frustrated in verse 9. Have I been with you so long you still don't know me, Philip? It's like he's saying, how many times do I have to tell you this? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus has been clear that he spoke what God told him to speak. In fact, in this exchange, Jesus offers two proofs. In verse 10, he says, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and Father is in me? Here's the first proof. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his work. He says, the first proof that I am God is 
what I have taught. Even the enemies of Jesus recognized an authority in the words and in the way that Jesus taught. An authority that was lacking in the rabbis. His words carried with them a weight of glory that was lacking. But then Jesus goes on to say, even if my words are not enough, look at the actions. Believe in me, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. If my teaching isn't enough, look at what I have done. He says, think about the compassion I demonstrated when I healed the blind. Think about the power of turning water into wine. Think about the mercy of healing the outcast. Think about the miracle of walking on the water. Think about the audacity of talking with a Samaritan woman and telling her everything she's ever done. Think about the awesomeness of raising the dead. And all those point to one truth, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Because only God knows past, present, and future. Only God walks on the water. Only God has the ability to change the chemical composition of water into wine. And only God can raise the dead. And they all point to the same picture that Jesus gives a clear portrait of God, for He is God. That's a truth that we need to stand firm upon. This is in a time when we need to follow the example of Peter. In John chapter 6, after Jesus had been teaching, many people started leaving him because they didn't like what he said. So Jesus looks at the apostles and he says, will you leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You've got the words of life. We need to have a tenacity to our faith that says, you know, when the winds of persecution blow, I'm going to be anchored to the truth of who Jesus is. That if I want to know God, I know Him in and through Jesus. Where will we see God if not Christ? So the second promise is that we should keep the faith because in Jesus we see God. Here's the third promise. Keep the faith because of the promise of greater power. Jesus transitions from talking about the works that he has done that point to his identity to verse 12. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. This is the promise that those who believe will do the works that he has done. Now, often this has been used to argue that means that every believer will do the miraculous things that Jesus has done. But I think that's missing the point of the passage, and I'll explain why. First of all, keep in mind that every work Jesus did was the work that the Father wanted him to do. So I think when he says in verse 12, if you believe in me, you will also do the works that I do, guess what? If we believe in Jesus, it will be shown because we will do what the Father desires us to do. But then he takes it up a notch. Greater works than these, these will be the works that Jesus has done, the believer will do. So how can that be? How can we do greater works than turning water to wine? Greater works than healing the lame? Greater works than raising the dead? The answer to that is understanding the role of all those miracles. Those miracles, as incredible and as true as they are, were simply signs. They were billboards pointing to the truth of who Jesus is. Our works will be greater because we can preach and evangelize and teach from the reality that the signs just point to. 
Whereas the signs we're looking forward, we look back to the completed reality of the cross and resurrection. You see, if we focus on only the signs and saying, well, this means we'll do the works, that would be like being on the, the interstate with your family and the kids are getting hungry. So they start, we, we, we're hungry, get us some McDonald's. So you see a billboard for McDonald's. Well, there it is. And you pull over to the billboard and say, go ahead, let's eat. It doesn't work like that, does it? Because the billboard is simply a sign pointing to the reality of the McDonald's and the Happy Meal on down the way. The sign points to the reality. If we stop at the miracles, we're stopping at the sign, the billboard. Our goal is to do a greater work by preaching the full work of the cross and the resurrection. That is the greater work that will go beyond even what Jesus did. See, that's mind-boggling to think that we would do a greater work than Jesus. But that has happened throughout history. The greater work is preaching the completed work of redemption in the cross and resurrection and how the Holy Spirit has empowered people to preach in ways that Jesus never did. This is what I mean. Perhaps the greatest evangelist of the 20th century was the late Reverend Billy Graham. On June 3rd of 1973, he stood on an airplane on a tarmac at an airport outside of Seoul, Korea and preached to 1.1 million people. Now when I say that he preached to 1.1 million people, I'm not talking about that many people turned on the TV or the radio. There were 1.1 million people there to hear the proclamation of the gospel. Look up on the screens. June 3rd, 1973. Here's the same shot from another angle. If you'll go to the next slide. Jesus never preached to a crowd like that. Never. Did he not say we would do greater works in the proclamation of the gospel than even he did? And that has been played out through Christian history. So believer, as we share the gospel, we are sharing a greater work because we're preaching from the completed reality of the cross and the resurrection. But notice we're not alone in this. How do we do this? Look at verse 12. Because I am going to the Father. We are able to do these great works, preach the gospel like that because he has gone to the Father. Now, Jesus is going to unpack that in the, the chapters ahead and talking about the Holy Spirit. That's why he says, it's good that I go away. And then he reminds us again that anything we do is because of his power. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this is not a blank check that says, name it, claim it. This is not a blank check saying, just say whatever you want and then add Jesus' name to it. To pray in his name is to pray in the character of Jesus. Seeking the glory of the Father. Notice the caveat in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, in other words, that is in accord with my character, I will do for this reason that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, as we pray seeking the will of God, Jesus will answer in the way that will glorify God and glorify the Son. That's why he comes back in verse 14 and says, If you ask me anything in my name, in other words, in accord with my character, I will do it. But do you notice the emphasis? I will do it, Jesus says. I will do it. He 
He's still doing the works of the Father through the church today. And that's why he's saying, don't be anxious. Because I can promise you this. Jesus will always complete his work. Always. Don't let the worries of this world distract you from what God is doing. He is at work, believer, in your life glorifying his name. Philip Crosby is a veteran of the Korean War. He wrote a book about an experience he had. He was captured. He was a prisoner of war that suffered through a march. And in his book, March Till They Die, he tells of a retreat the North Korean army undertook in which they forced prisoners to march. And while it was not as long as the Bataan Death March of World War II, this march was still incredibly difficult and hard. Any soldier that began to fall back would be shot on sight. Crosby says that he and his friends would encourage one another and encourage GIs as they saw the other soldiers start to, to waver in their strength and in their will. They would get as close as they could to them and whisper, God is near us in this dark hour. His love is real. His mercy is real. His forgiveness is real. His reward is waiting for us. Keep going. Keep going. Church, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer right now? Father, we recognize that we can do nothing apart from you. Our circumstances in life are trying. Even aside from the pandemic and all the challenges that have come about, Father, we struggle at times. Decisions that we have to make, problems here and there. And Lord, it's very easy for those with anxieties to, to begin to choke the truth of your word in our lives. Please protect us from that. Please let us hear afresh the words that Jesus spoke. Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus. Grant it, Father, we pray in our Lord's name.